0: We are thankful that you're here to join us uh, um, on the Lord's Day. Uh, it's time for us to celebrate. We've just entered into a time of worship and just honoring our King and our Savior. And, um, and now we come to our, uh, our time around the Scriptures. Um, turn in your Bibles to the end of Romans. Romans chapter 16, verses 25 uh, through 27. We will have time for extended fellowship later um, uh, church is uh, offering lunch, so uh, hang out, have some fellowship, eat some things, right? Fellowship is, uh, is often better when associated with food, and so um, share and encourage and build up one another. Um, but at this moment, let's turn to the concluding remarks of the book of Romans. Uh, there's a number of things that I would want to say. Uh, for one, um, some of you guys, if you guys uh, were here last week, will re- realize that we have kind of skipped over verses 21 through, through, through 23, and that's true. Um, yeah, I just don't have time for it. It'd be okay. It's, uh, um, you guys know something about Timothy, Lucius, Jason, uh, Sosbiter, that all of those guys are mentioned in other portions of Scripture as part of Paul's entourage. Tertius is the Emanuensis, which means that he's the secretary, actually writing physically the words of this particular letter as Paul is dictating that to him. And Gaius uh, was also mentioned in uh, other portions of scriptures. Um, uh, Erastus, city treasurer, just the thing I was going to mention is he's, uh, he's uh, up and coming. In fact, there is in Corinth, right, uh, 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 an actual thing um, um, etched into stone about Erastus and how he had, had, had uh, by his own money, had accomplished certain uh, building projects, etc. And so tells you that <clears throat> an excellent uh, member of uh, of the church of jesus christ rose to great prominence even in in um roman society and then our brother uh Quartus, which to me is the most interesting because we don't know anything else about him anywhere and the only thing we know about him is he's a brother right what's up bro right he's a wonderful dude so uh, all of that just to mention um so now see now now we've done it now we've talked about it and so you guys are all prepared Which leads us here to our closing remarks, which is the doxology. And I will say this. If I could give you one more kind of aside, and it's not essential to what we're looking at this morning, but it's an aside and a reality in terms of how Scripture is laid out. You notice uh, at the end of Romans, there is no verse 24. Did you notice that? Unless you're reading NASB. I think NASB has the 24, and then the New King James has 24. And it's because the, the concluding section of Romans has a number of different attestations, meaning like if you, if you gather the hundreds of Greek documents that have the Book of Romans, some of them will have slight variances of how it concludes. This doesn't this isn't shock you or, or make you feel uneasy about the inerrancy of Scripture. What this means, though, is that uh, if you saw towards the end of, um, of verse uh, 20... The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That sounds like the conclusion, doesn't it? Then a similar statement, which is verse 24, is that the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord, be with you. Or some form of that in the NASB or the New King James Version. And so understandably, some have thought maybe is that an add-in? Was that supposed to be somewhere else? And then this doxology that we'll look at this morning, was that supposed to be somewhere else? And it is. It occurs in different portions. In, in a couple of uh, manuscripts, it occurs at a different part of the book of Romans or the letter to the Romans. And maybe someone has decided to put it at the end, or maybe this is the way that it always was. It's uncertain. But what we have in our English text is at least everything that we have. And the intention of that is to give us right all of the, the, all of the data, and for us to kind of work through that. Um, But it shouldn't shake us because in the same way that we believe our doctrine of inspiration is that the scripture is inspired in its original autographs, meaning as it was written originally. And anything that is copied later is not not blessed with some supernatural kind of, you know, um, everything that is, you know it it is literally inspired as if every english text that has ever been printed is exactly perfect It's not it's a translation of what is perfect and inerrant and inspired and that's why we look to its uh direct and uh and try to get as close to its meaning as we possibly can now that's a lot to unpack on you um, um but praise the lord we're going to the doxology right we're going to the end um and so uh, our passage this morning is verses 25 through 10, 27 is short, but as doxologies go, it is usually power-packed with theology and with insight and with a connectedness in terms of its context to what Paul has been writing about previously. And it all comes together in this, this glorious doxology, which, which literally means it's a, it's a statement of worship or praise or glory it is it is it is like a song to conclude right a, a, a remarkable letter full of deep theology about the deep things of god about salvation rich and free and apart from anything that we could accomplish in ourselves about our own depth of sinfulness our undeserving and the fact that god should not love us as he does And with all of that unpacked, and his his promise to fulfill every promise, everything that he has said that he would do for the nation of Israel and for everyone that has placed their faith in Christ, this is the concluding praise, the concluding benediction or doxology. This is the reason to glorify God. And that's what we're calling it, the doxology. Glory to God in Jesus Christ. Let me read it to us, and then let let us back up and uh, and unpack this doxology um, phrase by phrase. Starting in verse 25 of uh, the letter to the Roman Christians. Verse 25 of chapter 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this um, finale of one of uh, the most... uh, um, significant books of the new testament we pray for your grace to enable us to see with spiritual eyes the depth of the praise that you deserve father we're thankful for the worship team and for those that serve uh, for dan chang who has served for many years there um, and how they lead us to try to glorify you in song and let that be part of the expression of our praise for you and as we look at this doxology as we look at this very concentrated and intentional um, statement of praise and glory to our God because of what He has done through Jesus Christ, His Son, I pray that we would unpack it in a way that reveals to us how great indeed You are and how undeserving we are, and that Your glory and our joy is always interconnected. I pray that would be the reality of this doxology for us this morning, that it would breathe life into us spiritually, that it would prepare us for a year that that will have certainly some great ups and probably some great downs. And for all that is uh, uh, ahead of us, Lord, may this draw us back to knowing that there is a God and that He is greater than all things and that it is to His glory and purposes that we should live that we would find strength and joy in the service of His Son. We pray to thank you for all things that we have in Jesus Christ, and we even offer this prayer um, in His name. Amen. Amen. The Westminster Divines opened up, right, the the shorter catechism with the question, what is the chief end of man? You guys know. Right? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What I love about those, those godly men was they recognize something, and that is that God's glory and our joy, as even in my prayer, as I said, they're intertwined. It's hard for us to believe sometimes because we kind of think, well, look, look I'm, I'm wondering what God is going to do for me to restore my joy. I'm wondering how God is going to work in my life so that I find happiness. I'm struggling There's a lot of stuff going on. And I'm wondering, when am I going to feel secure or good or happy or delighted, etc.? When am I going to get my joy? Isn't this part of what Jesus promised? This life, this life abundant? Where, Where is that? Where am I getting my share? And what we fail to understand is that it is in the glory of God, in our understanding of where we fit in the entire pattern of the unveiling glory of God where our part is in His glory, in His story, in His unveiling of what His plan and purpose for all of the universe is, when we find ourselves connecting with His glory, that's when we find ourselves not just content, but satisfied with what God has created us to be and what God has promised that we will become. His glory and our joy are forever intertwined. And that's why there's a doxology. To give glory to God, and in this case, specifically because of what He has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Let me give you an overview of where we're going here. It's about praising God for the power of God in the gospel. in Verse 25. And then it's about giving glory to God because of the wisdom of God in the scriptures in the rest of verse 25 and 26. And it's about giving God the glory. And it's about the glory of God in and through Jesus Christ, His Son, in verse 27. So let's unpack this. The first point is this, that, that, that there is the power of God revealed in the gospel. The power of God In the gospel. Look at the first part of verse 25. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Take that first phrase first. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you. There's two things there that that are so significant that we can't miss. One is that God has power. See, when it says there that to him who is able, him who is able, the word for able there is the word that we can otherwise translate power. It means that God has the power or the ability or the capacity. There is an enablement, a power in God that he could use to some, for some purpose, whether it's to create or recreate or to do or to whatever it is, the power of God. When we talk about God's power, we talk about an infinite power that has done infinite things. They say that our universe is uh, still continuing to expand. I I don't have a category for that. I don't know what that means, right? I don't know. Are we expanding? I mean, we're getting bigger. What does that mean? I don't know. But this is a universe that did not exist until God created it with His words. He is a God of power, and that power is displayed specifically in Scripture from the opening pages of Scripture in that He speaks and reality comes to take place a reality that did not exist previously no one gives god a creative idea a spark and says hey you know father we've been hanging out you know with the holy spirit all these you know eternity past and i got an idea right Then this is just God. And His creative ability is encapsulated in His power. When God is empowered to do something, He can do anything and nothing is beyond Him. And I think it's so curious that often in Scripture, the two places that His power is most amazingly displayed is over creation. His power displayed in all that He has made. And then in the recreation of the sinner, the forgiveness of sins, and the granting of eternal life to those who are undeserving. Oh, that, that, you know, um, Romans one seventeen made that very clear, or one sixteen made that very clear. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, why? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's power is connected directly with what he is capable of doing so to him who is able means that he is powerful it doesn't just mean that yeah i think god might be able to do this this isn't me thinking like you know what you know my team is able to get into the playoffs my team is able it's not just maybe they have the capacity to do it this is to say that if god is able it means that god is powerful and what is his power used for in this particular doxology him who is able, who is empowered, who has the supernatural capability, it says, to, th- to strengthen you. To strengthen you. This is a word of hope in the midst of the doxology, in the midst of praise. It's a word of hope in the midst of praise because Paul is affirming in his closing remarks that there is a God... That we trust in and believe in. And he is so powerful. He creates universes with just words. With just thoughts. And that God applies his power to establish you. To strengthen you. Strengthen is a great translation. The word means to make something stand. And the idea is to give it stability. To strength. To give it enough so that it could stand on its own is, is I think, the the, the impression here. Ephesians 3.20, a similar doxology says this, Now to him who is able, same idea, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So God is able, and what is He able? What does He use His power for? To make us stand. Now drink this phrase in for a moment. Because Paul is saying praise to God and His power because He uses His power to give us spiritual legs, to make us stand, to make us strong, to make us capable of endurance. Because if you have been struggling with sin, or you find yourself weak in your faith. If you feel like at times you are overwhelmed by the burdens of the difficulty of your life. Or you're not sure if there's a way out of some of the stuff that is, that is difficult and weighing upon your soul. This doxology is for you. This is an affirmation of the praise of a God that is strong enough. And that is willing and uses His power to give us strength enough to stand. Regardless of what is taking place now or what may take place in the future. It's an amazing statement of praise to the glory of God that He is able and that He is willing to strengthen you. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you, and then it tells us how. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the last the, the next phrase after What we just looked at. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Let let me say this first of all. Those two phrases are probably meant to be taken as, as kind of elaborating the second, elaborating the first. He says first that it is according to my gospel my message that is good right that's what the gospel means it means good news it is my good proclamation right it is my gospel and the preaching of jesus christ sometimes the the conjunction and can be translated even and it probably means something like that like that according to my gospel the proclamation of the message of the gospel and the continuing preaching of jesus christ so that they're kind of interconnected it's almost like saying according to the gospel that i preach which is Jesus Christ in Him glorified, right? The things about who Jesus Christ is and what He has done, all of that, that is the means by which He strengthens us in His power. I know that might, that might seem a little odd to you, but let me, let me try to unpack this a little bit for you as we try to think about this. The gospel, we said, is connected with power, right? It's the power of God for salvation, to everyone who believes. We said that already. But the preaching of Christ is similarly connected with not just power, but the means by which we come to know and believe and are transformed from sinner to saint. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 21, Paul says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. What did he preach? Well, the gospel. Or the things of Christ. You can put those two together and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? He preached the things concerning Christ to save those who believe. How were sinners rescued? By the proclamation of who Jesus Christ is and what He has done. The Jews, it goes on to say, demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks... Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see the constant connection that Paul seems to be making between the proclamation of Christ, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God through that, to rescue sinners and to display God's wisdom. All of it. The reason why I'm saying that it is about the means that this is, that that God is able, he has power to strengthen you, and he does that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason why I'm saying that is because the preposition, according to, kata in the Greek, right? Here can mean either this is the means. In other words, the gospel preached or the preaching of Jesus Christ is the means by which we are established and strengthened. And that would mean something like, you know, the hearing of the gospel message begins us in spiritual strength but it also means that that it is by the proclamation of the things of christ that we continue to stand spiritually the the gospel and the message of jesus revitalizes us that's what it would mean if it's the means if it is the standard or the manner right it is according to the gospel and the preaching of christ meaning that that his power to strengthen us is in a manner appropriate to the gospel that is preached then it means that, that it is, it, it's the gospel pro- proclaimed that, that strengthens us, not, not directly, but because it reminds us that God's strength comes through the same way that the gospel comes to us, by grace through faith. I, I think really all of that is included. I don't think it's just means. I don't think it's just manner. I think it's means and manner to say that when we proclaim the gospel, people can be saved by the power of God. But when we as believers continue to, right, to bear down and think carefully, to lean in on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we remember that it's not our own strength that makes us succeed, but it's His grace. Remember that we don't deserve something better than what we're getting, But we get so much infinitely better, right, in Jesus Christ because of His grace. We remember that it is by faith and not by our energy, not by our effort, not by our striving, that we find the joy of serving God and to serve Him well. We remind ourselves constantly by grace through faith in Christ, and that transforms us. The message of the the work of Jesus Christ is the how, God transforms us from weakness inability to strength. Ability. Let me give it to you one other verse. Colossians 1.28. This one you should write down in case you want to look at it later. Colossians 1.28. Paul writes, Him we proclaim. Talking about Christ? Him we proclaim. That sounds like this. Sounds like the gospel. Sounds like the preaching of Christ, right? Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He's making a straight line connection between proclaiming Christ and maturing. And the same thing is happening here. He's making a direct connection between the God who is able to strengthen you and the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, God has both power to change you and a willingness to rescue you. He uses that power to strengthen you. And the means and the manner of how He strengthens you is through the message of Jesus Christ. The vehicle of spiritual strength is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about it this way How was it that you came to faith? Well, one, you acknowledged your sin. Acknowledge your sin acknowledge your inability to rescue yourself and the righteous deserving of eternal wrath. You recognize both of those things. And so that you were given an option. I could either strive, I could be more righteous, i give a whole bunch of money to the church, maybe I'll, I'll feed the poor, I could try to earn something to make myself, try to counterbalance, right? The weight of my sin with some good deeds, I could do that as every world religion would teach you that you ought to do. Or... What does the gospel of Jesus Christ tell me? That I could turn to Christ alone in faith. That I can acknowledge my sin, confess it, repent, and by faith say, Lord, I will trust in nothing for forgiveness, for salvation, for life. I will trust in no one forgiveness for salvation for life i will trust in no ability that i possess no knowledge that i have gained i will trust in nothing in and of myself no capacity to give you to offer you anything right i will just trust by faith i will put my whole being in your hands and trust that you love me and that you have paid for my sins eternally the evidence of god's love for us then becomes the cross in his resurrection, so that we are now transformed from sinner to saint, not because of our efforts. There's no ground for boasting in ourselves, not because of our deserving. I'm so glad I'm a Christian and that guy's not. None of that nonsense, right? I would be sent to hell, and there's no reason why God should not send me to hell immediately, except for the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its truthfulness. Related to my soul and the cleansing of sins, because God has placed my sins upon him on the cross. The only reason to glorify God is because of the work of Jesus Christ. The only reason to find joy and gladness in this life and the life to come is because of the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel has the power to rescue you from your sin, it has the power to give you hope that will not fade. And even for the Christian, it has the power to grant to you a renewed energy to believe with joy that God has demonstrated His love for you through Jesus Christ. The application of this is endless. If you think about it, it is really the underlying feature of every, every biblical counseling uh, incentive that we have. And the, the, the most basic thing that we are trying to counsel anyone with is simply this. The gospel is sufficient. God actually loves you, right? Your biggest problem is not, he's not nice to me. My husband is not good. My wife is kind of mean. My teacher is bad. Or that my employer is demanding too much. Or that I don't have enough money or I don't have enough skills or I'm not smart enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not buff enough. Whatever it is, none of that is your biggest. Your biggest problem is you're a sinner. It's your sin, And the only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is solution enough so that if we would transform our thinking to believe God in Christ is enough for me, we would be set free. And now, yeah, I'm I'm still not taller. All right? I'm still not smarter. These difficult relationships haven't gotten all of a sudden easy. But for my part, I can trust in Christ because the evidence of God's love for me is in the death of His Son and the resurrection to validate that my sins are forgiven even though I don't deserve it and that I am loved by a God who is powerful to transform. See, the power of God in the gospel, that's the first glory. That's the first, that's the first praise, the first part of this oxology. the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he he takes this idea of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ and he relates it to the wisdom of God in the scriptures. The wisdom of God in the scriptures. The last part of verse 25 says this, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal god to bring about the obedience of faith now listen there's a lot um, that is there but ultimately paul is just giving glory to the wisdom of god revealed in the scriptures. Now, I'm borrowing the phrase, the wisdom of God, because uh, that's really the next verse, verse 27, right? It's the last verse. Um, And there in verse 27, it says, To the only wise God. But the reason why I'm borrowing that here is because I think Paul's point when he gets to verse 27 to say that that God is the one wise God to emphasize his wisdom there is because of everything that he has displayed in his scriptures. I think think he is exalting the wisdom of God in verse 27 because of everything that he has already laid out. See, the connection is here's the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ. It is able to change and transform and give us hope and joy, right? Right? And here's the God of wisdom. The connection is that God has revealed this from ages past in His Word and has now fully disclosed it in the person of Jesus Christ. And in that message that is so clear now, but wasn't always clear in the Old Testament. So that's why we're using this idea of the wisdom of God through His revealed scriptures. Because um, because it is about how God has used the scriptures for our good. Let me say this about God's wisdom, right? Um, That is an attribute of God, and any attribute of God that we talk about, we mean it in its infinite, right? Its infinite sense. It, it It is to say that if we say that God is love, we don't mean that He occasionally acts lovingly. It means that whatever love is, is defined by God, because He is the embodiment of it. He's the fullness of anything that can possibly be love. And so in that same way, when we say wisdom, we mean that He is the fullness, the full embodiment, that there can be nothing wiser than the God of wisdom. And that's why I think Paul uses the phrase, the only wise God. Not to say that there isn't human wisdom, but to say that all wisdom ultimately is found, right, fully in its its ultimate expression, in the glory of who God is and how wise He is. Having said that, wisdom is, is the application of knowledge. That's that's not surprising to you guys, right? It's the application of knowledge. But God is also, right, He is on-knowing, omniscient. It means that there is nothing outside the parameters of His capacity to know. It's not just that He knows a lot. He knows everything and stuff that we don't know. And if He is to apply, right, His perfect, full and infinite knowledge in a perfectly full and infinite way, then that's what we mean when we say the wisdom of God. It doesn't mean that God kind of knows best, like mama knows best. We mean that God is devising a plan for this universe, which includes every single human soul. He leaves none to chance and everything He is sovereignly applying His infinite knowledge to for the purpose, purpose of his wisdom, meaning that it is to come out its absolute best. It is an, it's an affirmation that God has, through the scriptures, revealed what he was doing and that he's done it at the right time according to his purposes, right? For the sake, ultimately, of his own glory. The wisdom of God in the scriptures. It is according to divine promise right that's the first part let me read you all of verse 25 again now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of jesus christ and this is the phrase we're looking at according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed According to the revelation, so it's the same preposition. And here, I think it, it does it is best translated just according to, in the sense that it is according to the revelation. Like like everything that is the message of Christ and the gospel is according to what has already been revealed, but was once hidden or made secret, according to the revelation of the mystery. The revelation of the mystery. It means that uh, revelation literally means that something is revealed, unpacked, or unveiled. And uh, the New Testament, Paul in particular, is fond of that term mystery. And what he means by that is something that would be revealed later, that was not as clear, right, in the past. It was something that was unknown in its full detail, but is now fully revealed. And you say, well, wasn't, within the, wasn't the Old Testament sufficient? Yeah, it was sufficient for faith and for salvation. But would they have known that the Son of God would become incarnate and take on human flesh? That He would live a perfect life and He would die on a cross to take on the burdens as a sacrifice, as the sacrificial lamb would take on the sins of the faithful, that He would die, that He would be raised the third day and He would be glorified. Would they know all of those details? And the answer is probably not. Right? There, there's hints, certainly, there, there's portions that, that become clear all of a sudden in Christ. But the reality is that this is a revelation of something that was once mysterious. Once that wasn't, that wasn't fully appreciated. And then there's three participles. Um, three verbal nouns that describe the revelation of this mystery. He says it, one, he says, The, the revelation of this mystery that was kept secret, that's the first one, for long ages. The second one, but has been disclosed. It's been disclosed, that's two, right? And through the prophetic writings has been made known. So it was secret, it has been disclosed, and it's made known. So this is Paul just kind of unpacking how the revelation of a mystery has now been, right? How a mystery in the past has been fully realized. How the message of Jesus Christ um, that was mysterious in the past has now been fully understood. And the first thing he says is it was kept secret. It was kept secret and um the the phrase literally means that it was silent right? that you didn't hear about it you, you didn't know about it i i like to connect this to deuteronomy twenty twenty nine twenty nine. 29 29 do you guys know that verse the secret things belong to the lord our god i like to use that when i don't know what in the world is going on you know what i mean it's like uh dad why is this happening i don't know deuteronomy 29 29 the secret things belong to the lord i it's it's, uh, only the Lord knows. It's like saying only the Lord knows. But there, verse Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but, and this is how secret is contrasted, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of His law. So in that context of that verse, it's saying that there are some things that are secret that belong to the Lord in contrast to those things that have been revealed clearly to us. Our responsibility is not to figure out what the secret things are. It's to know what the revealed things are. So, secret in the sense of unrevealed, revealed in the sense of God wrote it down in His Word, that's the way we're supposed to understand this. There were divine promises that God has always intended to reveal and is now in the person of Jesus Christ fully realized. Something that He had kept secret for long ages. That's that first description, right? Secondly, secondly, that it has now been disclosed. All right, that's the first part of verse 26. But has now been disclosed to the prophetic writings. The word for disclosed here means that something is made manifest or made plain. And the idea in, in, in the verb tense suggests that this is a historic and decisive act. In other words, something happened that in, in, a, in a moment, in a decisive act, manifested, made plain God's plan it was hidden in ages past. What what was that moment? Well, Titus 2.11 says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. He, He is saying that the embodiment of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel, that appeared historically one day. And when that moment happened, all of that that was somewhat hidden in the past, has been fully made known, made clear. That's the manifestation. That's the disclosure, but has now been disclosed, right? Has been now dis- been disclosed specifically to the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 opens up this way. Long ago, I feel like you got to do that voice whenever something like long ago, right? long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world See again a decisive historic moment that through, In the past, God has spoken in different ways, different circumstances, through different voices, right? Through all these different authors. But in these final days, God has spoken clearly and most clearly through the appearing, the manifestation, the full message, and the realization of the work and the majesty and glory of Jesus Christ. And the third thing, right? So, um, It's the divine promise, according to the revelation of the mystery, that was one that was kept secret for long ages, but two has been now disclosed, right? And here's the third thing, through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all the nations. So not only was this secret, right, a mysterion that was now revealed, not only has it been fully disclosed in a moment in history, in the appearance and the work and the finished work of Jesus Christ, but but third, has been made known in the prophetic writings for all the nations. For all the nations, the idea that it has been na- made known first of all, right, means that uh, um, what was once hidden has now again. It's, it's a word that means that it is it is given full knowledge that that people can understand this message, this proclamation, this preaching, and not only people, not only. God's people, meaning the Jewish people, but all the nations, the Gentiles. And this has been the plan from the beginning, apparently. Ephesians 3, 8 and 9, Paul says it this way, To me, though I am the least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? To preach to the Gentiles, to the nations, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. You see the repeated kind of nature of Paul trying to say that this is a truth that was embedded in the Old Testament. It's not like the Old Testament was silent on it, but it was somewhat mysterious, but now it's fully disclosed because of what Christ has done, because of His appearing, because of His work, because of His victory. And it's written down for us so that we can proclaim it. It is a a message, not, not a feeling. Can you get that? So even as you're trekking on your, your you know, your, your, whatever, your 17th attempt to read through the Scriptures in the year and stuff as the year began, God bless you. I'm not mad at that. And listen, neither is God. The thing that we get weird about, right, and I always, I always mention to you, is we, we treat our reading of Scripture kind of like a diet. You know? You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, hey, I'm on a no-carb diet. I'm going to eat no... And then you go out and you're like, hey, you, you order some fries? Oh, yeah, that looks good. You're not going to finish those fries? right and then you eat a couple fries you eat some more fries and you're like oh man i blew my diet so you go home and you think yeah ah, i messed up the diet forget this diet you know, have a coke right sorry you know, have this bowl of rice just because it's rice and carbs right like you we give in because in our minds the success is whether or not we can willpower ourselves to be greater than those things that are difficult for us we know this is good for us so i'm going to bootstrap myself into this does God watch us from heaven and go, oh, uh, see, now I'm supposed to read through the scriptures, and he's, he skipped today. Where's the book of life? And get me the eternal whiteout, right? <laughs> is, is he going to mark me off from the book of life because I didn't accomplish a reading program? No, and then if we, if we receive the reality that, that we're trying to do what we do, and I'm not making fun of reading programs, and I think they're good. I think they're excellent. We should try to, to do our best. And if we fail, though, That doesn't cost us salvation and life and reputation. You could fail. And then you can go, oh man, dude, I forgot to read scripture yesterday. What's wrong with me? Let's read it now. That is revolutionary to me. You can begin with God at any moment. Why? Because His grace is sufficient. And it's ultimately not about how well you do, but how much you believe that His grace is sufficient and God is God that is able And when you believe that, when you thoroughly believe that, you'll be amazed at the miraculous things you are capable of. Not because God made you stronger than most. Not because your willpower is so strong. Because of Him who is able to strengthen you. That's what the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel is all about. So... It has been made known, it is manifest, it is according to His divine promise, something that is tangible, that we can look to, that we can believe in. It is God's Word revealed and walking around, fulfilling His promises. And that is the message of Jesus Christ. And it is made known to all the nations. Right? It is made known to all people of all time. Let me give you a couple of verses, because right, like I was going to, and it's going to take too long to plot through kind of like some key verses and key ideas, key covenant promises that take us all the way in to the revelation of Jesus Christ. But we're talking about the garden, at the garden in Genesis 3, after the fall of man, and God addresses the serpent, which is is Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. In other words, you might get him on the heel, but he's going to crush you there's a promise that is to come all the way back in genesis when when humankind fell into to sin and then the covenant through abraham in genesis 12 when he says i will bless you and those i will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you i will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed not all the families of abraham right all the families of the earth there's, there's a promise that extends not just to abraham but through abraham to bless the world and then the davidic covenant right the promise of david in second samuel 7 where god says hey thanks for thinking about building me a house you can't build me a house but maybe your son could build me a house and one of your sons will sit upon your throne forever and i will establish his throne forever And then that becomes not just the anointed one to come, but is then reshaped in the prophets to say that the one that is to come in the line of David will rescue us from our sin. How? I don't know. Isaiah seems to suggest by his scourging, by his crushing, by his substitutionary something to rescue the nation. And then it goes beyond that, right, in terms of its width, through the world so that the world might be blessed through that message but it goes beyond that in terms of its depth so that it is not just the the outside that is transformed but the inside a new heart a new soul the holy spirit indwelling us salvation and the remission of sins all of that in the new covenant so by the time we get to the person of jesus man he is the full embodiment of every promise revealed step by step fully realized in him That is what we mean, that the wisdom of God is is laid out according to His divine promise and it's actuated according to His sovereign purpose. Look at that last phrase in verse 26. I read all of verse 26. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith according to his, his command. According to his command. It is to say that it is a sovereign and free act of God that has determined the method, the message, and the timing of the revealing of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was him that decided it all. When, how, who, who. God's the author of all of salvation. And and by saying that it is according to the command of the eternal God, right? It is saying that God is infinite. Yes, that's the eternal part, right? The eternal God, right? And in His infinite knowledge, and in the infinite and excellent application of that knowledge is wisdom, He has provided through the Scriptures kind of a step-by-step, kind of growing into the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it was according to His command, His sovereign grace... He declared it to be, and that's exactly how these things came to be. Infinite, eternal wisdom applied perfectly and through the promises of God through the ages. Remember we talked about sovereignty, especially back in Romans 9. And we said that, that one of the features of God being God is that He is sovereign, which means, right? Not just that he is in control of everything. He literally is in control of everything. But not just that. But he has the freedom to do anything and everything as he desires. I, I think that's the purpose of Romans 9 saying that, Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I hated. Because we're like, whoa, Lord, you know, like, like you know, Jacob's there. Esau, why can't you love both? What's happening right th-? God's point is he, he's not obligated to love either. But in his infinite and free exercise of his will, his sovereignty, he, choose, he chooses Jacob. He's not obligated. He just chooses to. In the same way that the potter works with clay, where the clay going, Lord, why'd you make me a you know, why'd you why'd you make me a bow? I don't wanna be no bow. I'm gonna be a vase, you know? I'm gonna be fine, China. Why'd you make me junky like this, right? And the point is, wait, does the potter go, hey, let me take a survey amongst the clay? He does as he pleases. Part of his sovereignty means that he is free to do as he pleases. And what he pleases is to rescue sinners from their sin through the message, the proclamation, and the work of Jesus Christ. Think about this. The humility that should set upon our souls when we realize that that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not ultimately about us, but it is really about Him. We offered nothing, we brought nothing, we deserved nothing, yet in His sovereign grace, He chose to love us, and He proved that love for us through the sending, the killing, and the raising of Jesus Christ his son and all of that for this last phrase in this one according to the command of the eternal god to bring about the obedience of faith to all the nations to bring about the obedience of faith this is a great phrase paul used it in the opening of the letter to the romans in fact it occurs in verse five where he's saying you know verse one that he's a servant of jesus christ an apostle for the gospel of god and he says uh, the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, sounds a lot like our doxology now. In verse 3 of chapter 1, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He uses that phrase, obedience of faith. And I take that to mean that genuine faith produces something, right? That obedience comes out of faith. Faith is not the same thing as obedience. It's not saying that this is one and the same equivalence. I don't think so. I think it's saying that faith is the foundation from which flows genuine obedience. So if that's the case then what he is suggesting here by this phrase, the obedience of faith, this is the full efficacy, right? The full efficacy of his divine wisdom in saving grace. In other words, we would use the term like, God has saved me. I'm born again. I'm trans, you know, I'm transformed. I am, I'm a new creature, etc." cetera. Those are all good and excellent ways to think about it. But by using obedience of faith, Paul is using a phrase that I think is meant to encapsulate the full expression of what it means that God has saved you. It means that you are rescued from your sin, yes. It means that He has empowered you to stand, yes. And that He has given you His Holy Spirit and His Word and the message of Jesus Christ so that you might actually walk in obedience. Something that you had no capacity to do apart from saving grace. Apart from the message of Jesus Christ. So it's, he's not just Savior, but he's Lord all in one when we talk about the full efficacy of this phrase to bring about the obedience, the obedience of faith. Now think back to that wonderful passage in Romans 10. Starting in verse 8, right? I'm thinking of verses 9 and 10 in particular, but verse 8 says, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because, in this is verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What you have there is a confession, one, that he is Lord, he is governor, he is master, and implies obedience. But that you are also saved, right? He is Savior, and that you have believed, right? It literally uses the term believed, that you have placed your faith in His work to rescue you. So that these concepts kind of merge together in this obedience of faith. It captures the full scope of what Paul and every preacher of the gospel is desiring, a faith that is genuine enough, that doesn't just rescue you from hell, but gives you eternal life and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Obedience of faith captures that full scope of what Paul is hoping for through the proclamation of the gospel. Believing obedience to Christ. Our Savior, that's faith, and our Lord that demands obedience. Right? The power of God in the gospel, the wisdom of God in the scriptures, and finally, and this will be short, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And I'll give you both right away. The glory to God only wise, the glory to God Through Jesus Christ. Verse 27 is simply this. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Glory to God, only wise. And we already talked about that phrase a little bit, that God is wise, but that God is only wise. Right? That there is only one God that is full and absolute and infinitely wise. He is the only one. It means that the wisdom of God is the application of His infinite knowledge so that He selects, right? And and we said this already, but let me repeat it. This attribute means that God selects the highest possible end through the best possible means through the fullest expression of the manifestation of His glory. Those three things, you get it? It, To say that God is only wise and He's infinitely wise means that He selects the highest possible end, everything's going to end to the greatest satisfaction of Him, right? Through the best possible means and nothing happens apart from how He intends this life to go. And even difficulties, even our sinfulness, God is shaping to the full manifestation of His glory. Best end, best means, and the ultimate glory of God Himself. That's what we mean when we're saying, praise God for being infinitely wise, for being the only wise God. And then the last part, to the only wise God be glory forevermore, eternally through Jesus Christ. The glory forevermore means that there's no cessation of glory. It'll be a forever glory. That God will be exalted for His wisdom, for how He has unpacked the message of salvation and the work of Jesus Christ and that glory will be ascribed to Him because of what Christ has done, because of what the Father had planned from, from before the laying of the foundations of the world. For all that is fixed upon Christ and His accomplishment, God will be glorified. We say it all the time. The, 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 that the main, right... The main cause of judgment upon every sinner will be simply, how did you honor my son? Why? Because the Son of God is the singular focus of God's purposes, the application of His wisdom to bring about His glory. So in that one person, that one life, and that one work, we could define everything and its It's reason and it's value for existing. You could define your work to the person of Jesus Christ. You could define your value to the person of Jesus Christ. You could define your identity to the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that you could think of that is significant, that might cause anxiety, that might give hope or take it away, you could redefine that and claim it under the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. Because He is... The vehicle through which the glory of God is revealed in redeemed persons and for all of eternity going forward. Let me close with this final admonition. It's from William Tin, Tinsdale, Tyndale, right? And if you know, William Tin, Tyndale is an old dude, so it's written in the old English. So pardon the Thou's and the thyselves, right? That's just how it goes. He wrote this as the prologue. To the book of, of Romans, and I thought it might be a fitting end for us. He says, Now go to, reader, and according to the order of Paul's writing, even so do thou. Obey the book of Romans, as we're saying, right? He says, First, behold thyself diligently in the law of God and see there thy just damnation. Secondly, turn thine eyes to Christ and see there the exceeding mercy of thy most kind and loving Father thirdly remember that christ made not this atonement that thou shouldest anger god again neither cleanse he thee that thou shouldest return as a swine unto thine old puddle again but that thou shouldest be a new creature and live a new life after the will of god and not of the flesh and be diligent lest through thine own negligence and unthankfulness thou lose this favor and mercy again that's how he began the book of romans Right, the opening of that study. And it's a fitting conclusion, and a fitting conclusion to this doxology that glory should be to God through the person of Jesus Christ for all time. Would you stand together and we'll close in a final word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do seek to glorify you for what you have accomplished in the person of Christ and the message of the gospel that everything that you have planned from before time began, you have accomplished through your Son. Oh, that we might live to glorify you through our messaging, through our obedience, through our faith unto obedience in the person of Jesus Christ, that you would receive the glory that you deserve. That you take the most unworthy sinner and rebel and make him your child not because of some obligation of of our instinct, of our choosing, but because of who you are, despite us, you have made us your children, redeemed by the blood of your Son. And we praise you for that. Help us to walk in a manner and to live in a manner that honors that glorious reality, that Jesus Christ is your Son, that He's died for us, and He's raised as a promise and as a declaration of your eternal love and grace to us. May that feed our confidence and strength until we meet face to face. In Jesus' name we pray.